Good morning, guys, and happy new year. 2021's over. Do you cry or clap or what? Y'all get to pick. I'm so glad you're here. I'm going to talk about extraordinary today, and I'm going to start by saying that if everybody is extraordinary, then actually everybody's just ordinary. So when I say ordinary, maybe I don't mean it in the way that it could sound. I mean ordinary in the sense that we don't have telekinetic powers or we're not able to travel through time or breathe fire out of our mouths or so forth. And in that sense, this young man, Davion Johnson, well, would otherwise have been just an ordinary young man. He's an 11-year-old sixth grader who still lives in Muskogee, Oklahoma. But he has received, well, almost half a dozen awards if I, that I know of, maybe more than that. He's an honorary police officer for the city of Muskoga. He's also an honorary sheriff's deputy. He's received awards from the school board, from the mayor. The New York Times has spoken of him. The Washington Post has CNN and many other affiliates of the major networks and so forth. Why, why this ordinary guy? Well, um, because when the challenge came, he, he stood up. So Davin lost his father earlier last year to COVID. And of course, it broke his heart. He has a family member who is an EMT, and he became interested at that point. He decided, I'm going to, I'm going to save lives. That's what I'm going to do. So this sixth grade boy began to watch YouTube videos of what it means to be an EMT. Got to start somewhere. And among those YouTube videos were YouTube videos on how to do the Heimlich maneuver. Well, on December the 9th, less than a month ago, he and several others were at the water fountain there in their elementary school when suddenly a child came stumbling up to them with a purple face and fell on the floor. Now, most of us know that when something like that happens, you know, your first impulse is to think it's just a, you know, it's a joke. They're playing a trick on us. They're trying to trick, uh, you know, be, do something funny. Everyone stood there for just a second except Davion, who re immediately realized that the YouTube videos were about to pay off. The boy had tried to take a water bottle cap off with his teeth and had breathed in, and the cap was lodged in his throat. He was dying. So Davion had him stand up, they, they picked him up, and the boy now at this point has stopped breathing. And he wraps his arms around him and he pulls and nothing happened. He does it a second time and nothing happened. So y'all know the Heimlich maneuver is that maneuver invented by some guy, I think his name is Carl or Charles or something Heimlich. By the way, this is a true story. So a couple of years ago, uh, an older woman in a nursing home was eating dinner. She was in her 80s and she choked on her food and began to she lost her breath, began to die. Sitting next to her is an older gentleman who stood up and did the Heimlich maneuver on her and saved her life. Well, the guy sitting next to her was Charles Heimlich, the inventor of the Heimlich maneuver. So it always pays to sit next to someone named Heimlich if you are eating. The third time, Davion wraps his arms around this boy, and seriously, the boy's dying. And he pulls in, the boy coughs up the cap of the water bottle and saves his life. And so for that, he's received all these accolades and he just looks like a, actually looks like a great little kid. I, I got to watch some of his, the videos on him and so forth. I think he might have an older soul in him already that he's interested in saving lives. And he demonstrates what I want to talk about for the next several weeks is that ordinary people actually become extraordinary when they rise up to meet the challenge that's before them. 
So there's no way that Dabyon could have known that challenge was going to emerge on that day, but here's what he did know. He knew that he wanted to be prepared for the day that it did happen. So we may not know all the challenges coming our way, but we actually know that we will be facing challenges and we can prepare now for them. Makes me think about where the church is right now, where many of our lives are here in the U.S. I mean, it's been a tough two years. We all know that. We thought 15 days would flatten the curve. Been a really, really, really long 15 days for most of us as the curve uh, even recently has just spiked in the state of Tennessee. So I, I try to keep up with the numbers and I may not have all the numbers exactly right, but just the moving average of the last seven days in Tennessee, I think is something in the vicinity of 7,000 new cases of COVID in the state of Tennessee. To put that in context, back in May and June of last year, it was about 100 or 150 cases in that seven day moving average. So it just continues, seems like it just keeps rolling on. I don't know that any of us could have expected the virus. I remember planning for well, we were right in the middle of planning a fundraiser. We were eight days away from Giving Sunday, paying off the, build, uh, the land for the West Campus, building a building there, sending out missionaries here in the U.S., planting hundreds more churches uh, internationally in the global south, and suddenly everything comes to a grinding halt. I'm not sure any of us could have anticipated the unrest in the streets, some of which I think was probably necessary and some of which wasn't, some of which was really out of hand. I'm not sure that most of us could have expected the high anxieties that a lot of us would feel. The mental health issues that have been exasperated by the last two years, all the closures, you know, the, the spike in crime, the, the uh, inflation rates going up. Who would have thought that we would find ourselves in such a bitterly divided nation now that it, it, it almost feels irreconcilable now. I, I don't think it is but it almost feels that way, as though there really are two Americas and they can't coexist anymore. I hope that's not the case. And then there's the church. I'm not sure any of us would have expected that the church would have gone through some of what it's gone through. Here are some very recent numbers on how America perceives its allegiance to the Christian faith. You don't have to have paid a whole lot of attention to notice that just since 2007, the Christian religion has taken a hit in the U.S., down from 78% self-identified Christians in, 1900, excuse me, in 2007 to 63%. So those who check the box, no religion, the nuns, so to speak, N-O-N-E-S, almost 30% of Americans now say they have no religious affiliation. They don't want to be considered a Christian. And in fact, the secularism is really aggressive. So not only are they not Christian, but if you've paid any attention at all, you know that it's unchristian, at times even hostile to the Christian religion. The pandemic has probably accelerated that which was already happening. It's maybe too early for us to give good hard numbers. I know this. I know that in, just in the small fellowship of the churches of Christ, which before the pandemic, uh, or some years back, I should say 20 years ago, could have counted about 1.3 million people on any given Sunday. We've lost 230,000 people, attenders, in the last 20 years, and that's before COVID. So various estimates have come out that have suggested that church attendance is down anywhere from 20 to maybe as much as 30%, and none of us really knows whether those folks are coming back. Once you get out of the habit of doing that which is good, 
Sometimes it can be really difficult to get back into the habit. And the Christian faith in the U.S. now, I think, is really facing challenges that it's never faced before. Now, every generation of Christians faces all kinds of challenges. This is just our challenge for our day. But if you think that uh, losing that, that Christian influence is bad for America, I'm not sure that we've seen anything yet. When suddenly the numbers of people who don't believe in the rightness of God, who don't believe in the salvation of Jesus, who don't believe in biblical truths, when that number reaches a tipping point, there's no way it's going to end well in the U.S. And so we kind of stand in a day of challenge and a day of anxiety, I think, a day in which it's not always clear what we're supposed to do. And here we are at the first of the new year, and we need to do something. So I've decided I'm going to preach through Hebrews chapter 11 for the next several months, two and a half months, 11 lessons on Hebrews 11. And here's why. The letter to the Hebrew Christians in your New Testament is written to people who also face a challenge. It's not the same challenge as ours, but there's some analogies. And the answer that Hebrew 11 gives, Hebrews 11 gives, for people who face a real urgent challenge is timeless. And so I want us to walk through the role models given to us in Hebrews chapter 11 as something of a cue for what we should be doing in the 21st century, the year 2022, ourselves. I want to say that the Hebrew letter is written to Christians who came from a Jewish background. They've probably been Christians for 20 or 30 years, and they're starting to lose steam. That's obviously the situation behind the writing of this letter. They're losing steam. They face opposition. Some of them have been openly persecuted. Their own family members haven't spoken to them in decades because they became Christians. They're probably now on the wrong side of the tracks because to be a Christian was to be fired from your job, to lose your place in the unions and the trade guilds, perhaps to have some of your property confiscated. So these guys are suddenly starting to think, you know, it might just be easier to go back to being a Jew. And the Hebrew writer writes his letter to say, I know these are anxious times, but you need to rise up to the challenge that you face. So I'll put it this way. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he gives the warning, do not drift away in hard times. In fact, if you walk through Hebrews, you see that this admonition, this encouragement, this uh, hortatory statement is repeated over and over again. Let me just show you a few of them where we are told, see to it that nobody turns away from the living God. Hold to your original conviction firmly. In difficult times, don't back down. Here we go. Since we have promises of coming into God's rest, don't let any of you fall short of it. Hold firmly to the faith that you profess. Make sure you show the same diligence all the way to the end. Go on and cross the finish line. Don't quit when it gets hard or when times get anxious or when you don't know what to do. Don't quit. Do not become lazy, he says. Hold unswervingly to the hope that you profess. Listen, on and on he goes. He makes sure that you throw off everything that hinders you. Practice perseverance. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Over and over again, the Hebrew writer wants us to know when we face challenges, as we're doing, there are two things you have to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Turn that off. You need to fix 
your thoughts on Jesus and do not get distracted. I actually think this is a big deal for us because uh, the last couple of years have baited us. They've tempted us to take our eyes off of Jesus and the mission of Jesus and instead put them on politics, culture wars, social issues, and so forth. Now, I've said this before. Politics not only matter, they are often of life and death importance. Like we need to pay attention to politics. I get it. I'm, I'm for it. The culture wars are fought for real reasons. They matter. Social issues are of oftentimes, again, the difference between life and death for people. But at the end of the day, not just North Boulevard, but your mission is to make disciples. If you take your eyes off that mission, disciples will not be made, and you've got no guarantee that politics, culture, or social issues will be any better. But the one thing we've been told to do, we'll fail at. And so we got to keep our focus on Jesus, even in 2022. And let me give you a second one. This is really important because just before we get to that hall of faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, which chronicles what faith looks like, just before we get there, at the end of chapter 10, we're told that God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back. In fact, he says, we don't belong to those who shrink back and what? are destroyed. You know what's really important in this phrase? The opposite of going forward is getting destroyed. You're either on the offense or you're being destroyed. There's no defense. Shrinking back is equivalent to being destroyed in this text. And so he says, rather than shrinking back, we have faith, we move forward. So what I want to suggest that is in this text, the opposite of faith is not atheism. You know, up until recent centuries, there really were no functional atheists. People didn't, it was not really conceivable for people to say there are no such things as spirits and there is no such thing as a God. That's kind of a recent position. But what is the opposite of faith in this text is shrinking back. That is, if our young men, Davion, had stood there and let the young men die, that's the opposite of faith. Not saying I don't believe in the Heimlich maneuver. I don't believe in choking. I don't believe in this young man. But it would have been inaction to be inactive, to fail to respond to the challenge. That's disbelief in the Bible. Ultimately, that unwillingness to say, yes, we face all kinds of challenges, but the people of God don't back down. We can't back down. And so Hebrews 11 just chronicles all these individuals who refuse to back down. We get a kind of a, a conceptual definition of faith. But every illustration in Hebrews 11 is an illustration not of somebody who sat down and pondered God and said, yeah, I think he's there. No, every illustration in Hebrews 11 is somebody who faced a challenge and then rose up to the occasion. They started as ordinary and ended as extraordinary. Abel rose up to face sin and salvation. I'll explain in just a moment. Enoch rose up to witness righteousness to a corrupt world. Noah rose up, spent a hundred years building a boat. Can you imagine building an ark? I mean, a huge ship in your front yard for a hundred years. And every time somebody walks by, they say, what are you doing? And you say, I'm preparing for the flood. For a hundred years, this God does this. He rises to the challenge before him. Abraham left his comfortable home with all of his people to wander a foreign land. Sarah 
at the age of 90 has a baby rising up to the occasion in order to leave the legacy for the people of God. Abraham rose up to offer his son as a sacrifice. Isaac rose up to bless the future of Israel. Jacob rises up to bless the future of the 12 tribes. Joseph rises up to announce the exodus from Egypt. All of these are in Hebrews 11. You'll see all of these in Hebrews 11. Moses' parents disobeyed Pharaoh in order to save the baby's life. Then when Moses grew up, he rose up and condemned Egypt, led the children of Israel out of bondage. Israel rose up and marched around the walls of Jericho. The prostitute Rahab rose up and protected the spies who were hiding in her home. And then the Hebrew writer says, well, I don't even have time to mention all these folks. I can't even tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets and others. What he's going to argue is this. At the end of the day, ordinary people become extraordinary followers of Jesus, not because they have no challenges, but because they rise up in the face of their challenge. And they say, we're going to do the work of God. So let's look at the first four verses of Hebrews 11 today. And look at faith. The first three verses give us something of a conceptual definition of what faith is. I say conceptual, it's almost, um, almost a linguistic definition. It's only after verse 3 that we start getting illustrations to say, oh, now I see what it is. Let's read it. Now, faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So he's about to list all these ancient people. He's going to give you a narrative of them. This is why they were commended, because they had confidence and they had assurance, he says. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was invisible. There are two words I want you to see here in this definition. The first one is the word confidence, and the second one is the word assurance. Now, depending on what translation you have, these words are translated with, with great variety. And the reason they are is because these, are two, these words are two really profoundly philosophical terms in the original language, the Greek language. And it's not easy to bring a very deep, rich, philosophical word from one language into another. And so you see how the different translations handle it. Uh, the Greek is hypostasis or elekos, the two words that are used here. The Vulgate, the Latin uh, translation, the early official Latin translation, substantia and argumentum. And then the King James says substance and evidence, assurance, conviction, confidence. Sure. So what's going on here? Well, the two words are essentially saying this. When you look at the first one, the first one means that faith is that which lies beneath everything else. So a person who has faith is motivated by that faith in everything else they do. This is actually how, well, this is how our young man decides to rescue another young man. That he already had this sense. He was driven by this desire to save lives. He had lost a life in his family. Driven by the desire to save lives, he wasn't going to stand by and watch another kid die. Faith for the Christian is that conviction that, all right, Jesus lies beneath everything and he motivates all that I do. The second term in Greek, elekos, is a word that sometimes in the Bible, in the Greek language, sometimes means to point out somebody's fault or to accuse somebody, 
Now, why would it be translated here as assurance? And the answer is, this word means that you have actually pointed out a reality so clearly that someone sees it. And what the Hebrew writer says about faith is, faith is when you finally open your eyes and see what's really there. It's when you see what's really there. Put it in this language. Faith is when we're able to look at tables and carpets and people and sunsets and whatnot and perceive the work of God within it and behind it. That's what faith is. Now, these are conceptual definitions where faith comes across to us as perceiving the fundamental reality of the world and then courageously rising up. But now we get, starting at verse 4, it should not say 1 to 3, it should say 4. Starting at verse 4, we actually get a demonstration of what this looks like. And the demonstration is from the life of Abel. So, to catch you up, Genesis chapters 1 through 4. Adam and Eve, the first created humans. They're thrown out of the garden because of their sin. And the very next thing that happens is they have children and one of their sons murders another son. Cain murders Abel. The surprise, by the way, of sin. So once sin is introduced into the world and the community, into our lives, it's not going to end well. Now, Cain murders Abel because Abel offers a sacrifice that pleases God and Cain does not. So it's even worse. It's jealousy. Listen to how it's put in verse 4 of Hebrews 11. This is verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. So what was the difference in their offerings? Well, Abel brought blood to give to God. And Cain brought vegetables to give to God. Now, from a distance, from 2,000 years later, after the writing of Hebrews, that's actually, for a lot of us, might be sort of like, well, that's okay. Why would God not like those vegetable sacrifices? But if you're a Jew reading the letter to the Hebrews, you already know what's the problem with Cain's offering. For you know that the Old Testament repeatedly says, without blood, there can be no atonement. It costs blood for a person to be forgiven. I'll, I'll explain it in just a moment. I just want you to see it's all through the Old Testament. Blood is necessary for us to acknowledge our sin and they be forgiven of our sin. So when Cain does not offer blood, he's not acknowledging his sin. In so many ways, Cain is saying, my sin doesn't matter. I don't need to be atoned. In fact, in case you miss it, in Hebrews chapter 9, just two chapters before the one we're looking at now, the Hebrew writer says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the difference between Cain's offering of the vegetables or the crops of the field and Abel's offering, which was the blood of, of, of uh, goats and lambs, the difference is that Abel understood that he was a sinner in need of salvation. And Cain did not. Let me just give you one short paragraph explanation. Sin is so serious that somebody has to die for every sin. Every lie you tell, if you tell a lie this afternoon, a small lie just to keep peace at home, somebody has to die for that lie. 
So when you get on your phone and you start looking at pornography, things that you know you ought not look like, just, just be aware of this. Somebody ha- blood has to be shed for that sin. Somebody has to die. If nobody dies, if blood is not shed, then God is not a just God. Because in his justice, God has made us so that we will not pollute his creation. And every sin is an act of destruction against the creation of God. And because he's a just God, he's going to hold everybody accountable. So blood is essential to our salvation. Somebody has to die for every sin. Otherwise, God's unjust. Abel knew that. So he brought in animals to atone for his sin. Abel is confessing his sin in his sacrifice. He's rising up to the sinfulness of humanity. Cain is not, and that's the difference. Now, the good news for each of us is that Jesus shed his blood for every one of our sins. So the blood has been shed. The justice of God has been met because Jesus took our sins upon him and absorbed the blood that we owed. That's one reason why the death of Jesus is so fundamental to our sins and our forgiveness. Something else I want you to see in this. Abel rises up to face the challenge of sin and salvation. But another thing about Abel that you need to notice is that Abel understood a profound truth that you dare not forget. There are only two kinds of people in this world. Now, I'm not trying to suggest your ethnicity is irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. It matters. I'm not suggesting your gender is irrelevant. Gender matters. It matters. Your, your race, well, these things matter. I'm not suggesting they don't matter. But because they get overplayed in the U.S., they get way overplayed in the U.S., it can be really easy for us to neglect the only two races the Bible actually cares about. You know what they are? The lost and the saved. At the end of the day, this is how God looks at it. God doesn't look down and say, well, David, now you're a Caucasian. These are the things that I've got prepared for you Caucasians, you white guys, or whatever you want to word it. God looks down at us and he says, these people have been washed by the blood of Jesus. They're saved. And these people have not been washed by the blood of Jesus. And they are lost. And they are headed for an eternity away from me. And so then he turns to those of us who've been washed and he says, do something about it. Do something about it. And that's why I'm preaching this sermon. I have to admit that preaching this sermon feels to me to be a little bit uh, tone deaf. I've, I've, all, I've been preparing the sermon for a couple of months, actually. And even this morning, I woke up, I woke up so early this morning, I couldn't sleep. Because I'm thinking, all right, it's just been two really hard years. You deserve a pastoral series of sermons. You deserve that. Most of us are hurting. A lot of anxiety. A lot of us just need to be reassured. God loves us. He's not going to leave us. He's still with us. To preach a sermon in which I'm really saying, okay, we got to get back to the mission of God, feels to me like it's tone deaf. But I'm telling you, it matters. You know why? It matters because the world is choking right in front of us. The world's choking. Our own children are being lured off. Many of our institutions are turning against us. Faith in Jesus Christ is it's falling in the U.S. And with the pandemic, it may, be falling in a, it may be in a free fall at this point. Churches are closing. One of our Christian universities, the Church of Christ University, just went out of business two weeks ago. Just two weeks ago. And in a world where people are choking, 
even though we might be wounded from what we've been through, we must be wounded healers. That is, we must be people who rise to the challenge before us. We must continue to practice safety. We must continue to be mindful not to put people in situations where the pandemic can really hurt them. But at the same time, we are either going forward with the mission of God or we're losing. That's it. Those are your only two choices. Either we're going forward in awesome faith for King Jesus or we're shrinking back. There are no other choices there. And that means that after two years, we want to continue to be safe. We want to continue to be smart. We want to do what Jesus says, wise as doves. Excuse me, wise as snakes, gentle as doves. Many of you should not come back to our services until it's safe for you to do so. But we cannot give up the mission of God. We can't just back down and say, we'll just wait till this all blows over. There are souls at stake. This is what Abel understood. Sin is real. It has a real price tag. It's running rampant. And our job is to stand up to it. And so it means at least something like this. If I were to give you, we'll unpack all of this. So I can just do this real quickly. It means at least something like this in 2022. It means at least that we will recommit ourselves to prayer. Many of you have great prayer muscles, great prayer reflexes. North Boulevard's prayer reflex has grown through the years. But I do want to remind us, this is spiritual war. I predict, this is not a prophecy, I'm not a prophet. I'm not pretending to be one, but I got a prediction. You want my prediction? Maybe you don't. You're going to get it anyway, unless you leave real quickly or turn it off. (laughs) You're going to start having more dreams, more spiritual struggles. You're going to start experiencing demons and angels. Many of you are. I said that at first service. I had several people come up and say, how did you know that? How do you know I had a dream last night about wrestling with a demon? It's going to start happening. You know why? Because finally the spiritual war in which we live is exposing itself. You're going to start to see it. Some of you never even believed in it are going to start to see it. And if we're to engage the spiritual war in which we find ourselves, we didn't ask for it, we didn't want it, but here it is. And we got to rise to it. We better do it with prayer. Because only God in the name of Jesus can win this battle. I know many of you are already people of prayer. You know, I've, I had a list of uh, someone gave me a while back of just some of the prayers that have been answered at North Boulevard. Let me say this about prayers. God responds to our faith a lot more than he responds to our needs. So if we have the faith of prayer, God responds. Uh, on my list, there are probably seven names of people who've been healed through prayer at North Boulevard. We one, of, one of the names has been healed of cancer through prayer at North Boulevard. Y'all know Tim Haddock is one of our deacons. He's also a part-time staff member. He drives to different states. For those of you who are online who request prayers, he'll drive to different states to pray for folks. I don't know how many states he's been to. Went down to one family's house. Both husband and wife were sick, prayed over them. And the husband's well now. The wife is at least at peace. Y'all may, uh, some of you may be involved in this. We had a young man played soccer and was involved in North Boulevard through a soccer coach. This was a uh, year and a half or two ago. Started having back, back pain, so he was about 14 years old. Went in, eventually ended up at Vanderbilt Hospital, and they discovered he has leukemia. Uh, acute leukemia, very serious leukemia. A group of folks got together, a group of folks at North Boulevard got together and said, we're going to just pray nonstop for him. By the way, the boy now is a sophomore in high school, fully recovered from the leukemia. We called the family to say, can I tell the story? And they, they were so honored. Of course you can. And so excited to praise God that when people prayed, God responded. Remind yourself of this. He responds to faith more than he responds to need. 
Whatever your need is, that doesn't activate God like your faith will. By the way, we've got a lot of prayer events planned again this year. Uh, the Experience Church has had a 40-day prayer and fasting to start every year for the last couple of years. They want to go, like, do it community-wide, Rutherford County-wide. So far, only three, other, uh, three churches are joining, but we're one of them. So we've actually partnered with the Experience Church for 40 days of prayer and fasting, beginning, God willing, on January 14th. We're actually going to have a worship service over at their building that night. I think I'm speaking. We've got several others. Our praise team, I think, will be there and so forth. I'm inviting you to come to that service. But more than that, I'm inviting you to join what might be a couple of thousand other people here in Rutherford County in prayer and fasting that God will move in a big way in the lives of the people, not only here, but near and ultimately clear on the other side of the world. Then in March... We want to spend the whole month of March praying. What I'm saying, I'm just getting back to them, that we have challenges facing us. The difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary is that the extraordinary will rise up and face the challenges. Second thing I want to say is fortify your relationship with the church. We have a covenant together. The church is the bride of Christ. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the family of God. It is the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the body of Jesus himself. That means church matters. A lot of churches have struggled during the pandemic. As I say, churches are going out of business. I'm not bragging when I say this. North Boulevard has done really well. We've done well financially. Our numbers are up. Not just financially, the number of people. We've, uh, the number of small groups is up. We've done well. But I just want to say, these are hard times. And it would be really easy for some of us to allow our relationship with the people of God to grow lax. You will lose if that happens. Those of you who are online, our online campus, we're serious about an online campus. We encourage you to stay online. We're, we're great with it. Many of you, uh, I just want to say one more time, you don't need to come back to in-person services until this pandemic has burned its way through or things are much safer. We want you to stay away. We really do. But if all you're doing is watching the service, that's probably not going to sustain you. It's so important that you interact with believers. All those one another texts, 40 something one another texts in the New Testament, they cannot be satisfied by you merely watching me on the screen. You have to get part of the body. Find a way to become part of the body, even through your home, through Zoom or FaceTime or whatever it is. We got a lot of online small groups where you can join. In fact, the small groups at North Boulevard have blossomed. So as things have gone well, people have remained committed. I just wanted to show you this. Y'all know this week, we finally got an address for the West Campus. I'm proud to tell you it's 4950 Burnt Knob Road. And that property has actually been paid for now by people during the pandemic. Yeah, that is actually that is kind of cool. Um, and then there's this. In 1994, here's Mark and Connie Smith, by the way. There's, uh, Nick, you're up there somewhere, you and Cheryl. Where are y'all? Yeah, the good looking ones. Look at that young Nick Horton there. In 1994, a group of young marrieds got together and said, you know, we need a young marriage ministry at North Boulevard. There was not one. The John's House class was the young marriage class. If you're not laughing, that's because you haven't been in the John's House class because they're all in their 80s now. 
but they started out as a young marriage class and they grew up together. Many of us have grown up together from 1994. We have a couple of elders and deacons and so forth from this group. Well, at the beginning of this year, 2021, back in January, a group of young marriages got together and said, we need to do it again and start another young marriage group. Four small groups have come out of this just this year. More than 50 young marrieds, this is just a small group of them, have joined together. Here's what I want to say. You will be friends for life. If you'll make a commitment, if you will fortify or renew your covenant with the church. And then I'm going to end with this one. We have to be careful during the pandemic. North Boulevard's tried to be cautious. We've tried to be wise. I just want to say this. Every leader knows right now that these are just really t tough times. I was meeting with, uh, I don't want to say who it was, one of our politicians who has a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of responsibility and just kind of commiserating on you don't really know what to do. I, I will tell you that for everyone that North Boulevard has had, we had lost many people, but for everyone who's left us because we weren't requiring masks enough, we've had the same people, number of people leave us because we weren't requiring them at all. Every angry person we've had on our left at North Boulevard, and we've had a few, felt like we didn't take it seriously, uh, thought we blew it off, you know, quoted all the death statistics. I just want to make sure you know we had the same number on the other side who are talking about how we're willing to set aside the work of God in order to follow what our government is saying, who are making pretty good arguments the other direction. We've tried to manage it best we can. What I can tell you is we intend still to be cautious, we intend still to be safe, and we don't want anybody to get COVID here. I can also tell you we are not going to back down from the mission of God. We're not going to back down. We are facing a choking person in the U.S. of A today, and we have a job, and we can't wait for things to get better. We have to rise up to the challenge that's already before us. We have to find safe ways to do it. We have to find wise ways to do it. We have to have smart ways to do it. But we got to make disciples. It won't wait. It won't wait. I'm happy to tell you that when you make disciple making the main thing, it changes stuff. Back in 2006, North Boulevard had 10 baptisms locally in the local congregation. I'm not talking about our missions. 2007, we had seven baptisms. In 2012 and 13, we started talking about making disciple making the main thing. We called it the 2020 vision at the time. Do you know in 2013, it went from seven to 72 baptisms? In fact, if you just follow the numbers, 2014, 100, 64, 58. Look at this, 2017, 120 baptisms here at North Boulevard, 97 in 2018, 2019, 109. The numbers have gone down a little bit the last two years. But what I want you to know is that when we make disciple making the main thing, it changes the world. It will change the world much more effectively than politics, culture, and social structures will. Because it saves souls forever. And so when we talk about making disciples, Cool things happen. So I had a couple of guys who met a young man from Laos, Laotian here in Murfreesboro, Tyler Lamb and David Hunsker. They met him at the gym and just started talking to him about his soul. And they were able to baptize this young man 
uh, not long ago. In fact, we called him to say, "Can we?" Uh, Andy's his name. Andy, do we have your permission to share this? And Andy's like, oh yeah, I can't wait. Share it, share it. It's like a big deal. It, of course it's a big deal. And he's able to write his name in the back. You know, I was back here, we had a baptism Tuesday night. I'll show you a picture of him in just a moment. I had a baptism this last Tuesday night. I'm standing in the back and there are hundreds of names of people who were baptized here in four, five, six, seven languages. When we make disciple making the main thing, it changes the world. Michael and Ellen Holland moved here several years ago. Michael works at AEDC. While he's working there at AEDC, he runs into Brian Monroe, a member at North Boulevard. Brian says, why don't you come to North Boulevard? They start coming. Soon they're in a discovery Bible study, a discipleship group. They become so convinced that they should make disciples that they volunteer at a local shelter for women, and they start baptizing various individuals. Here's a baptism of a young woman named Brittany. Carla, who was just baptized a week and a half ago in Lima, Peru. So Carla has an aunt who lives in Murfreesboro who said, hey, you need to go online and see North Boulevard service because they do one in Spanish. So from Lima, Peru, Carla starts watching North Boulevard, gets involved in a Bible study, and is baptized in a bathtub a week and a half ago. Here's Marco. Marco came at the end of our Christmas program just a week and a half ago. Ask can he be baptized? Jorge Suarez baptized him. Tuesday night, I had the privilege coming up with Bella, who's being baptized here at North Boulevard. It's like once you say disciple making is the main thing, it changes people's eternal destinies. It also, by the way, plants churches. So at year 70 of North Boulevard, when we were 70 years old as a church, we had planted more churches than most churches will ever plant, 134 churches in 70 years. But once we said making disciples is the main thing, I want you guys to see that. Since 2018, we have planted 510 new churches, most of them in the middle of the pandemic. All I'm saying is this, the challenges we face are real, they're exhausting, they're frustrating, they produce anxiety. I am sick and tired of all this stuff. And if you're not, God bless you, I'm so weary of it. But I know that when a challenge is set before us, we are not invited to kick back and wait. We are told, rise to the challenge. Don't shrink back. That's what faith is. Faith is stepping out and facing the challenge set before you. So back to our young man, Davion, 11-year-old boy. I said he would have been ordinary, but he stepped up, so he became extraordinary Honorary uh, police officer, honorary uh, deputy sheriff, uh, the board of directors of the school, the principal, and so forth. I didn't tell you the rest of this guy's story. So it was December the 9th, Thursday at school. He sees a boy choking. He saves his life. It's pretty traumatic for Davion, by the way. So his mother came and picked him up from school and took him home. Well, they're a Christian family, and they had a church service at 5 o'clock that night. So she gets ready to take him to church, and on their way to church, they pass a house, and the mother looks over, and she says, looks like somebody's got a bonfire in the backyard. And Davion says, I don't think that's a bonfire. Pull over, Mom. So this ordinary young man pulls over. They honk the horn a little bit, and all of a sudden, they start seeming flames. The house is on fire. It's engulfed in flames. It's the same afternoon that he just saved the other young man. Five people come running out of the house. Davion's sitting in the car, he looks in, and he sees an elderly woman on a walker who can't get out. He says, wait just a minute, Mom. 
throws open the car door, runs into a burning house, picks up the elderly woman, and saves her. He saves two lives on Thursday, December the 9th, and they still got to church on time that night. Yeah. I throw the... (laughs) I throw the last. I throw the last part in because if you're late, I wonder what you, what's your excuse. You know, this kid saves a choking boy and runs into a burning house and saves someone. This is someone who got the principle that we want to make sure we don't forget. Faith becomes extraordinary when it rises up to meet the challenge in front of it. Every generation of believers has had challenges. We now have ours. But this is the year we want to pray like never before. We want to strengthen our covenant with the other believers, the church. And we want to make disciple-making the main thing. We stand up and sing and resolve those things in your heart.